This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 8, Chapter 5, Part 2, The Dramatist The only real one out of this brilliant batch of plays in which I think that the method adopted really fails is the one called Widower's Houses. The best touch of Shaw is simply in the title. The simple substitution of widowers for widows contains almost the whole bitter and yet boisterous protest of Shaw, all his preference for undignified fact over dignified phrase, all his dislike of those subtle trends of sex or mystery which swing the logician off the straight line. We can imagine him crying, Why, in the name of death and conscience, should it be tragic to be a widow, but comic to be a widower? But the rationalistic method is here applied quite wrong, as regards the production of a drama. The most dramatic point in the affair is when the open and indecent rack-renter turns on the decent young man of means and proves to him that he is equally guilty, that he also can only grind his corn by grinding the faces of the poor. But even here the point is undramatic because it is indirect. It is indirect because it is merely sociological. It may be the truth that a young man living on an unexamined income which ultimately covers a great deal of house property is as dangerous as any despot or thief, but it is a truth that you can no more put into a play than into a trial it. You can make a play out of one man robbing another man, but not out of one man robbing a million men, still less out of his robbing them unconsciously. Of the plays collected in this book, I have kept Mrs. Warren's profession to the last, because, fine as it is, it is even finer and more important because of its fate, which was to rouse a long and serious storm, and to be vetoed by the censor of plays. I say that this drama is most important because of the quarrel that came out of it. If I were speaking of some mere artist, this might be an insult, but there are high and heroic things in Bernard Shaw, and one of the highest and most heroic is this, that he certainly cares much more for a quarrel than for a play. And this quarrel about the censorship is one on which he feels so strongly that in a book embodying any sort of sympathy it would be much better to leave out Mrs. Warren than to leave out Mr. Redford. The veto was the pivot of so personal a movement by the dramatist so very positive an assertion of his own attitude toward things, that it is only just and necessary to state what were the two essential parties to the dispute, the play and the official who prevented the play. The play of Mrs. Warren's profession is concerned with a coarse mother and a cold daughter. The mother drives the ordinary and dirty trade of harlotry. The daughter does not know until the end the atrocious origin of all her comfort and refinement. The daughter, when the discovery is made, freezes up into an iceberg of contempt, which is indeed a very womanly thing to do. The mother explodes into pulverizing cynicism and practicality, which is also very womanly. The dialogue is drastic and sweeping. 
the daughter says the trade is loathsome the mother answers that she loathes it herself that every healthy person does loathe the trade by which she lives and beyond question the general effect of the play is that the trade is loathsome supposing any one to be so insensible as to require to be told of the fact undoubtedly the upshot is that a brotherl is a miserable business and a brotherl keeper a miserable woman the whole dramatic art of shaw is in the literal sense of the word tragic comic i mean that the comic part comes after the tragedy but just as you never can tell represents the nearest approach of shaw to the purely comic so mrs warren's profession represents his only complete or nearly complete tragedy there is no twopenny modernism in it as in the philanderer mrs warren is as old as the old testament for she hath cast down many wounded yea many strong men have been slain by her her house is in the gates of hell going down into the chamber of death here is no subtle ethics as in widowers houses for even those moderns who think it noble that a woman should throw away her honour surely cannot think it especially noble that she should sell it here is no lighting up by laughter astonishment and happy coincidence as in you never can tell the play is a pure tragedy about a permanent and quite plain human problem the problem is as plain and permanent the tragedy is as proud and pure as in oedipus or macbeth this play was presented in the ordinary way for the public performance and was suddenly stopped by the censor of plays the censor of plays is a small and accidental eighteenth-century official like nearly all the powers which englishmen now respect as ancient and rooted he is very recent novels and newspapers still talk of the english aristocracy that came over with william the conqueror little of our effective oligarchy is as old as the reformation and none of it came over with william the conqueror some of the older english landlords came over with william of orange the rest have come by ordinary alien emigration in the same way we always talk of the victorian woman with her smelling salts and sentiment as the old-fashioned woman but she really was a quite new-fashioned woman she considered herself and was an advance in delicacy and civilization upon the coarse and candid elizabethan woman to whom we are now returning we are never oppressed by old things it is recent things that can really oppress and in accordance with this principle modern england has accepted as if it were a part of perennial morality a tenth-rate job of walpole's worst days called the censorship of the drama just as they have supposed the eighteenth-century parvenus to date from hastings just as they have supposed the eighteenth-century ladies to date from eve so they have supposed the eighteenth-century censorship to date from sinai the origin of the thing was in truth purely political its first and principal achievement was to prevent fielding from writing plays not at all because the plays were coarse but because they criticized the government fielding was a free writer but they did not resent his sexual freedom the censor would not have objected if he had torn away the most intimate curtains of decency or rent the last rag from the private life what the censor disliked was his rending the curtain from public life there is still much of that spirit in our country 
there are no affairs which men seek so much to cover up as public affairs but the thing was done somewhat more boldly and baldly in walpole's day and the censorship of plays has its origin not merely in tyranny but in a quite trifling and temporary and partisan piece of tyranny a thing in its nature far more ephemeral far less essential than ship money perhaps its brightest moment was when the office of censor was held by that filthy writer coleman the younger and when he gravely refused a license to work by the author of our village few funnier notions can ever have actually been facts than this notion that the restraint and chastity of george coleman saved the english public from the eroticism and obscenity of miss mitford such was the play and such was the power that stopped the play a private man wrote it another private man forbade it nor was there any difference between mr shaw's authority and mr redford's except that mr shaw did defend his action on public grounds and mr redford did not the dramatist had simply been suppressed by a despot and what was worse because it was modern by a silent and evasive despot a despot in hiding people talk about the pride of tyrants but we at the present day suffer from the modesty of tyrants from the shyness and the shrinking secrecy of the strong shaw's preface to mrs warren's profession was far more fit to be called a public document than the slovenly refusal of the individual official it had more exactness more universal application more authority shaw on redford was far more national and responsible than redford on shaw the dramatist found in the quarrel one of the important occasions of his life because the crisis called out something in him which is in many ways his highest quality righteous indignation as a mere matter of the art of controversy of course he carried the war into the enemy's camp at once he did not linger over loose excuses for license he declared at once that the censor was licentious while he bernard shaw was clean he did not discuss whether a censorship ought to make the drama moral he declared that it made the drama immoral with a fine strategic audacity he attacked the censor quite as much for what he permitted as for what he prevented he charged him with encouraging all plays that attracted men to vice and only stopping those which discouraged them from it nor was this attitude by any means an idle paradox many plays appear as shaw pointed out in which the prostitute and the procuress are practically obvious and in which they are represented as reveling in beautiful surroundings and basking in brilliant popularity the crime of shaw was not that he introduced the gaiety girl that had been done with little enough decorum in a hundred musical comedies the crime of shaw was that he introduced the gaiety girl but did not represent her life as all gaiety the pleasures of vice were already flaunted before the playgoers it was the perils of vice that were carefully concealed from them the gay adventures the gorgeous dresses the champagne and oysters the diamonds and motor-cars dramatists were allowed to drag all these dazzling temptations before any silly housemaid in the gallery who was grumbling at her wages but they were not allowed to warn her of the vulgarity and the nausea the dreary deceptions and the blasting diseases of that life mrs warren's profession was not up to a sufficient standard of immorality 
it was not spicy enough to pass the censor. The acceptable and the accepted plays were those which made the fall of a woman fashionable and fascinating for all the world as if the censor's profession were the same as Mrs. Warren's profession. Such was the angle of Shaw's energetic attack, and it is not to be denied that there was exaggeration in it, and what is so much worse, omission. The argument might easily be carried too far. It might end with a sense of screaming torture in the Inquisition as a corrective to the too amiable view of a clergyman in the private secretary. But the controversy is definitely worth recording, if only as an excellent example of the author's aggressive attitude and his love of turning the tables in debate. Moreover, though this point of view involves a potential overstatement, it also involves an important truth. One of the best points urged in the course of it was this, that though vice is punished in conventional drama, the punishment is not really impressive, because it is not inevitable or even possible. It does not arise out of the evil act. Years afterward, Bernard Shaw urged this argument again in connection with his friend Mr. Granville Barker's play of Waste, in which the woman dies from an illegal operation. Bernard Shaw said truly enough that if she had died from poison or a pistol shot, it would have left everyone unmoved, for pistols do not in their nature follow female unchastity. Illegal operations very often do. The punishment was one which might follow the crime, not only in that case, but in many cases. Here, I think, the whole argument might be sufficiently cleared up by saying that the objection to such things on the stage is a purely artistic objection. There is nothing wrong in talking about an illegal operation. There are plenty of occasions when it would be very wrong not to talk about it, but it may easily be just the shade too ugly for the shape of any work of art. There is nothing wrong about being sick, but if Bernard Shaw wrote a play in which all the characters expressed their dislike of animal food by vomiting on the stage, I think we should be justified in saying that the thing was outside not the laws of morality, but the framework of civilized literature. The instinctive movement of repulsion which everyone has when hearing of the operation in waste is not an ethical repulsion at all, but it is an aesthetic repulsion and a right one. But I have only dwelt on this particular fighting phrase, because it leaves us facing the ultimate characteristics which I mentioned first. Bernard Shaw cares nothing for art, in comparison with morals, literally nothing. Bernard Shaw is a Puritan, and his work is Puritan work. He has all the essentials of the old, virile, and extinct Protestant type. In his work he is as ugly as a Puritan, he is as indecent as a Puritan. He is as full of gross words and sensual facts as a sermon of the seventeenth century. Up to this point of his life, indeed, hardly anyone would have dreamed of calling him a Puritan. He was called sometimes an anarchist, sometimes a buffoon, sometimes, by the more discerning stupid people, a prig. His attitude toward current problems felt to be arresting and even indecent. I do not think that anyone thought of connecting it with the old Calvinistic morality. But Shaw, who knew better than the Shavians, was at this moment on the very eve of confessing his moral origin. The next book of plays he produced included The Devil's Disciple 
Captain Brassbound's conversion, and Caesar and Cleopatra actually bore the title of Plays for Puritans. The play called The Devil's Disciple has great merits, but the merits are incidental. Some of its jokes are serious and important, but its general plan can only be called a joke. Almost alone among Bernard Shaw's plays, except of course such things as How He Lied to Her Husband and The Admirable Bashville, this drama does not turn on any plain pivot of ethical or philosophical conviction. The artistic idea seems to be the notion of a melodrama in which all the conventional melodramatic situations shall suddenly take unconventional turns. Just where the melodramatic clergyman would show courage, he appears to show cowardice. Just where the melodramatic sinner would confess his love, he confesses his indifference. This is a little too like the Shaw of the newspaper critics rather than the Shaw of reality. There are indeed present in the play two of the writer's principal moral conceptions. The first is the idea of a great heroic action coming in a sense from nowhere, that is, not coming from any commonplace motive, being born in the soul in naked beauty, coming with its own authority, and testifying only to itself. Shaw's agent does not act towards something, but from something. The hero dies not because he desires heroism, but because he has it. So in this particular play, the devil's disciple finds that his own nature will not permit him to put the rope around another man's neck. He has no reasons of desire, affection, or even equity. His death is a sort of divine whim. And in connection with this, the dramatist introduces another favorite moral, the objection to perpetual playing upon the motive of sex. He deliberately lures the onlooker into the net of Cupid, in order to tell him with salutary decision that Cupid is not there at all. Millions of melodramatic dramatists have made a man face death for the woman he loves. Shaw makes him face death for the woman he does not love, merely in order to put the woman in her place. He objects to that idolatry of sexualism which makes it the fountain of all forcible enthusiasms. He dislikes amorous drama, which makes the female the only key to the male. He is feminist in politics, but anti-feminist in emotion. His key to most problems is, no chersey pas la femme. As has been observed, the incidental felicities of the play are frequent and memorable, especially those connected with the character of General Burgoyne, the real, full-blooded, free-thinking, 18th-century gentleman who was much too much of an aristocrat not to be a liberal. One of the best thrusts in all the Shavian fencing matches is that which occurs when Richard Dudgeon, condemned to be hanged, asks rhetorically why he cannot be shot like a soldier. Now there you speak like a civilian, replies General Burgoyne. Have you formed any conception of the condition of marksmanship in the British army? Excellent, too, is the passage in which his subordinate speaks of crushing the enemy in America, and Burgoyne asked him who will crush their enemies in England. Snobbery and jobbery and incurable carelessness and sloth, and in one sentence towards the end, Shaw reaches a wider and more genial comprehension of mankind than he shows anywhere else. It takes all sorts to make a world, saints as well as soldiers. 
If Shaw had remembered that sentence on other occasions, he would have avoided his mistake about Caesar and Brutus. It is not only true that it takes all sorts to make a world, but the world cannot succeed without its failures. Perhaps the most doubtful point in all the play is why it is a play for Puritans, except the hideous picture of a Calvinistic home is meant to destroy Puritanism. And indeed in this connection it is constantly necessary to fall back upon the facts of which I have spoken at the beginning of this brief study. It is necessary especially to remember that Shaw could, in all probability, speak of Puritanism from the inside. In that domestic circle which took him to hear Moody and Sankey, in that domestic circle which was a teetotal even when it was intoxicated, in that atmosphere and society, Shaw might even have met the monstrous mother in The Devil's Disciple, the horrible old woman who declares that she has hardened her heart to hate her children because the heart of man is desperately wicked, the old ghoul who has made one of her children an imbecile and the other an outcast. Such types do occur in small societies drunk with the dismal wine of Puritan determinism. It is possible that there were among Irish Calvinists people who denied that charity was a Christian virtue. It is possible that among Puritans there were people who thought a heart was a kind of heart disease. But it is enough to make one tear one's hair to think that a man of genius received his first impressions in so small a corner of Europe that he could for a long time suppose that this Puritanism was current among Christian men. The question, however, need not detain us, for the batch of plays contain two others about which it is easier to speak. The third play, in order in the series, called Plays for Puritans, is a very charming one, Captain Brassbound's Conversion. This also turns, as does so much of the Caesar drama, on the idea of vanity of revenge, the idea that it is too slight and silly a thing for a man to allow to occupy and corrupt his consciousness. It is not, of course, the morality that is new here, but the touch of cold laughter in the core of the morality. Many saints and sages have denounced vengeance, but they treated vengeance as something too great for man. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Shaw treats vengeance as something too small for man, a monkey trick he ought to have outlived, a childish storm of tears which he ought to be able to control. In the story in question, Captain Brassbound has nourished through his whole erratic existence, racketing it about all the unsavory parts of Africa, a mission of private punishment, which appears to him as a mission of holy justice. His mother has died in consequence of a judge's decision, and Brassbound roams and schemes until the judge falls into his hands. Then a pleasant society lady, Lady Cicely Wainfleet, tells him in an easy conversational undertone, a rivulet of speech which ripples while she is mending his coat, that he is making a fool of himself, that his wrong is irrelevant, that his vengeance is objectless, that he would be much better if he flung his morbid fancy away forever. In short, she tells him he's ruining himself for the sake of ruining a total stranger. Here again we have the whole note of the economist, the hatred of mere loss. Shaw, one might almost say, dislikes murder not so much because it wastes the life of the corpse, but because it wastes the time of the murderer. 
If he were endeavouring to persuade one of his moonlighting fellow-countrymen not to shoot his landlord, I can imagine him explaining with benevolent emphasis that it was not so much a question of losing a life as of throwing away a bullet. But indeed the Irish comparison alone suggests a doubt which wriggles in the recesses of my mind about the complete reliability of the philosophy of Lady Cicely Wainfleet, the complete finality of the moral of Captain Brassbound's conversion. Of course it was very natural in an aristocrat like Lady Cicely Wainfleet to wish to let sleeping dogs lie, especially those whom Mr. Blatchford calls underdogs. Of course it was natural for her to wish everything to be smooth and sweet-tempered. But I have the obstinate question in the corner of my brain, whether, if a few Captain Brassbounds did revenge themselves on judges, the quality of our judges might not materially improve. When this doubt is once off one's conscience, one can lose oneself in the bottomless beatitude of Lady Cicely Wainfleet, one of the most living and laughing things that her Maker has made. I do not know any stronger way of stating the beauty of the character than by saying that it was written especially for Ellen Terry, and that it is with Beatrice one of the very few characters in which the dramatist can claim some part of her triumph. End of section 8, chapter 5, part 2.